Welcome to the Center Point Podcast, a critical discussion about food and nature and the points that matter. I'm your host, Amy Center, and for our inaugural episode, I'm talking with Sam Ross, founder of Assurance Mark, the Investors Consortium for Assurance. Thank you for joining us for our debut episode, Sam. Amy, I'm so excited to be here. I'm thrilled about your new podcast. I'm thrilled about the concept. I'm thrilled you're doing it. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. I was wondering if we could start by just telling us a little bit about how you got into sustainability. This space is ever emerging and I know your background is from law. How did you stumble into our neck of the woods? Yeah. So, I mean, everybody's got their own story about the thread that they've been pulling on their lives and where we took them. Um, as you mentioned, I originally actually a securities lawyer and practiced securities law, worked at the SEC for a couple of years, actually during a very critical time period during the Enron WorldCom debacles. I got to see a lot at that time and kind of see a lot of what can go right and what could go wrong and the differences. And then after the Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002, moved over and helped start up the new board, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board that was established to oversee the accounting profession, but also big mission was to restore public confidence in financial reporting, corporate reporting, corporate governance, and help our markets be well-run, efficient, and robust, and improve investor protection. In that role, I was very focused for much of my career on financial reporting. I mean, corporate reporting more broadly, like SEC reporting and the 10K, but also very specifically on accounting and how the financial statements operate. I was always very focused on investor protection, like the link between the corporate reporting and the markets and how the markets reacted to corporate reporting. And then very specifically, it won't surprise you given the path I took, um, the role that trust, that assurance and corporate governance play in our markets. For many years, I was very involved in just getting the institution, the PCAOB, established, set up, get the programs put together. But after a time when we had our operations up and running, I personally started really focusing a lot on looking at our impact, measuring our impact, and also keeping my finger on the pulse of investors and what was important to investors because our mission was investor protection. And so I'd say around the middle of the odd years, investors started getting more comfortable with financial reporting. Thank goodness we were working really hard for that to happen and restore that confidence. Markets were improving. But investors also were starting to look at a lot of different kinds of information and the role that that kind of information would play in their investment decisions and started asking companies for more different kinds of disclosure outside of the financial statements. And like I said, because I always tried to keep my finger on the pulse of what investors were interested in, I found this very interesting. And knowing how important all corporate governance and assurance, the financial statement audit was to uh, to the quality of the information that investors used, even from the early days, I personally would wonder, okay, well, you're asking for this additional information, but how are you going to make sure that the information is really of the same caliber, investor-grade caliber of information used from your SEC filings? initially, it was just sort of a question I had as I kind of walked through life and did my job and and focused on what we had to do. But over time, investors were getting more information and then started coming to us and saying, we actually really like what we're getting out of the financial statement audit now. We're starting to really see improvement, but we do have these other information needs. And how could assurance be brought to those needs? And I thought that was really interesting. It was a sign of evolution of thought process, I think. 
And so then I got started getting interested in the kinds of information that investors were looking for. And it started with like executive comp. And then it got into what we call today ESG, environmental social governance. Then it evolved into very deeper areas like climate disclosure, human capital disclosure. And that's still where I spend most of my time today, actually, in those subjects. What I'm interested in, the question that's really fascinating to me is how we can improve the quality of reporting to then improve the markets, to to improve the way the markets function, to improve capital formation for companies, to help companies get capital at, at a low cost, to help companies build trust with the markets, and then protect investors' interests and information that they believe they need for investment decisions and proxy voting decisions. So that was my route. <laughs> yes. I I love that. And you know, it's so I think it's one of the best parts of being in the sustainability field, if if it even can call it that, is back when I was slogging through my master's in environmental planning and policy stuff, there was no no hint on my horizon that I would ever work so closely with someone with such deep knowledge around SEC and disclosures and financial reporting and all those things. And then we all start working together to solve these big sticky issues. And I think it's a really interesting piece, especially, you know, you have such history in what we would all now call the G within environmental mm-hmm. social governance. Before it was just, do we even have the right disclosures in place and the right mechanisms to oversee those? And that it's a module that we keep putting new aspects to. So it's really interesting to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, that G is so important. I mean, the markets actually are based on trust. That's the way I, that I, I see it is that markets work because we trust. I mean, someone who has capital is providing capital to somebody else. Our markets are so vibrant because you don't have to know the person that you're providing the capital to or that you're getting the capital from. We have a system that encourages capital formation amongst dispersed investors who don't know each other and don't know the users of capital. What that means is we can have the best managers, the people who are really expert at executing on strategies and running companies, have access to capital from people who are the best at allocating capital and know how to do that. They don't actually have to know each other. In more primitive markets, trust is built on the two groups, people from the two groups actually knowing each other. And we still have markets a little bit like that, like in venture capital, it's very much based on personal relationships. But you know, you don't have big public capital markets like we do without being able to have a system of governance that supports people who don't know each other coming together and trading in that market. And that's because of trust. Without trust, that doesn't happen. That's what I saw in the Enron days. The floor just drops out from under you. And building that trust is a hard thing. But once you experience that, you kind of see how important it is and how important it is to constantly be maintaining that trust and finding new ways to build that trust, both at a market level and an individual company level. Yeah, it's a fascinating parallel to where we are today with some of the E and the S pieces of what is a carbon market or how do you really as a company invest in reducing greenhouse gas emissions beyond your four walls, right? And today, I think hearing that example, it's it rings so true to me because when I was on the side where I was making investments on behalf of a company about decarbonizing, it was based on, do I have trust in this NGO? 
What relationship do I have? How many other people have they worked with that I also know, respect, and trust? And that is a really difficult thing to scale to the level that we need to. And especially when we go beyond something as one could argue simple as uh, carbon, but as we get towards nature and social topics, it's even harder to quantify, right? And, And build that trust. So where do you think we are in that journey today for some of the ENS pieces? And I would say there's definitely a lot of activity to try and build that trust. How do you think that's going? It's a great question. I think over the last several years, maybe the last 15, even almost 20 years, I think the markets have really been thinking through different kinds of information that can impact and help a capital allocator make better capital allocation decisions, both to preserve capital or to grow capital, to figure out which are the companies that have the best business models that are really going to succeed in the future. Thinking about what that information is, that data set, that's been the job of many, many coalitions of people and investors, companies. WBCSD, of course, has played a huge role in this, especially with WBCSD's role in the Greenhouse Gas Protocol, for example, over 20 years ago. There are numerous other frameworks, though. I know a lot of people say, well, gosh, there's so many frameworks, I've got framework overload. But with all that development is is really just many, many people in a dispersed market coming together to think about the hard questions of what information is useful for what kinds of decisions that we need to make in the future. And we've seen more recently a kind of consolidation of those frameworks. So I think that's fantastic. It's a natural evolution. The fact that we had a lot of different initiatives, a lot of different platforms to think about New frameworks is very inclusive. It allows anybody who's got great ideas to participate. I think that's been very good to get the best ideas. But now to have some consistency across the board to make it really operational and actually pragmatic to report on, it's great that we're seeing this consolidation because investors do need information they're providing is really investor grade, worthy of investors have faith in the company's reporting and in the company's strategy. External insurance to me is just naturally the next step. These are the steps we went through 90 years ago when the SEC was formed. I'm really a student of history and love to look back at that old history in the 20s and the 30s and how the SEC got formed. What were those decisions in those early days? And in many ways, we're making some of those kinds of decisions over again, except now we have the benefit of all that experience, lessons learned. And also really great institutions that we've built, like including trust. We have an entire institution we call the audit assurance that's now really built out that I think is well-tooled to to help address those kinds of problems. 30 years ago, we had no frameworks for maybe the environmental and social pieces. Then we started to get many frameworks. Now we're at Mm -hmm. the point of consolidation and assurance and that is a huge pivot for many of us who came up in the many framework part of that journey. And you mentioned investor grade, which is something that I've had to learn a lot about over the last few years. Can you give us a quick rundown on what is investor grade from your perspective and maybe some of the evolution that the sustainability field is going through as it thinks about investor grade data? 
my experience is really always in the markets. So when I say investor grade, I mean information that people can use to act on to make decisions in markets, like investment decisions, buy sell decisions, voting decisions. I mean, governance is very important. You know, making decisions about governance is a key. Having the ability to play a role in governance is the key market benefit that investors value and improves the market that investors are able to participate in those kinds of decisions. And when we say investor grade information, it's information that is reliable for those decisions. A lot of people take the audit for granted, take assurance for granted, don't really think about it. In fact, it's kind of interesting to me, you know, most of my life, I think most of the people I know think the area I'm in has been a little on the boring side. I, I personally think it's fascinating, but you know, a lot of people take the audit for granted. For many, many years, the audit report was only on the financial statements. That's all they thought of it as is related to the financial statements. And it was like a one-page document that was boilerplate. It just said it was just sort of a pass-fail. In fact, it had a lot of terminology that was a little bit hard to unpack. But essentially what that audit report said, even that pass-fail one, which was, I think, extremely valuable. I think market reacts to it as extremely valuable. But it's not a document you take and study and read very closely because it's boilerplate. Every audit report looks the same. And essentially, the report says it expresses an opinion by the assurance provider that the statements of management, which in the old days was just the financial statements, income statement, balance sheet, cash flow statement, and all the notes to those statements, that those statements are fairly presented in conformity with the framework that was specified, which was usually U.S. generally accepted accounting principles. More recently, sometimes it could be international financial reporting standards, but there wasn't a lot of variation in the framework. The opinion said the financial statements were fairly presented in conformity with the framework and free of any material misstatements, whether due to error or fraud. There aren't material mistakes. There's not a fraud going on here. The audit is designed by the auditor to evaluate the risk of material misstatement, and then perform procedures to address that risk and then result in an opinion where the auditor stands by it. That's investor grade. There are other forms of assurance or forms of statements that third-party assurance providers sometimes provide. You mentioned greenhouse gas emissions earlier. It's very common now for companies to voluntarily get some kind of assurance over greenhouse gas emissions reports. CDP asks whether you get assurance. I think that's a big driver of whether a company likes to just sort of check that box off. And sometimes those assurance statements are what we call limited assurance, which is not an opinion. It's a statement by the assurance provider that the assurance provider performs certain procedures, and they should be stated what the procedures are. Sometimes they're not, but they should be. The assurance provider performed those procedures, and having performed those procedures, nothing came to the assurance provider's attention that there is anything wrong with the management statement. But of course, that's that's not saying that it is correct or that it is fairly presented in conformity with the reporting criteria. Instead, it's a statement that I did these things, whether it's five things, 10 things, 15 things, you have to look at the things that the insurance provider said they did. If it's a lot of things, if it's a lot of really important work, and of course, that's hard to judge if you're not an expert in auditing. If you don't really know how impactful those procedures are or not, you might not trust yourself that you can make that judgment. But you have to look at the procedures, and if they're really very robust, deep procedures, then actually that kind of statement might be pretty valuable. But if they're not 
that robust. You're just looking at documents that management gave you. You're not doing a risk assessment. You're not doing site visits. You're not doing testing is really important. Testing the information to see if the data sources for assumptions or data calculations the company's making, if you're not testing that, then that statement that I didn't see anything problematic is not that valuable. So, of course, there's a wide variety of providers and a wide variety of procedures that providers use. So it really is up to the reader of the assurance statement to decide how much do I want to credit this assurance statement to help me feel like the information is more reliable. And I think that's a risk for users of the statements, investors, and it's also a risk for the companies that get those kind of statements because you're not necessarily getting the full value out of having a third party stand by your statement, attest to that management statement is is right. Based on my all my testing, it's accurate. That's a long way to describe what I think is investor grade. I think that's super helpful because that is such a huge change in, I would say, the especially the U.S. culture around sustainability reporting. Because to date, many sustainability professionals have been doing their best on very limited budgets, making the right and educated assumptions from the point of view of the science and supply chain, but not necessarily from the point of view of the investor. And the decision-useful investor-grade data really is a different bar, and it's a different type of verification process that you need to go through. On one hand, I could see a lot of listeners having small heart attacks thinking about yeah. all the hoops you just laid out. Right. Help me understand, right. what's the what's the upside to this? Why, why is yeah. this going to be helpful to a company or to a sustainability professional that just got the dreaded knock from the audit team on their door saying, let's open up this can of worms? How do you see this as potentially a useful innovation moment for, for the industry? Yeah, that's such an important question, Amy. So yeah, you've got to understand the why, right? And I think we're moving from a setting where the why is because I have, I'm at a company, I have this third party CDP or some other rating agency saying we, you know, we are collecting this information on behalf of a stakeholder, maybe investors, maybe some other stakeholder. And we've got this checklist of what we want to know. We're collecting all this information. So it could be a very important initiative, but the why of providing an assurance statement, if the rating agency accepts a limited assurance statement, then the why is, okay, we'll get that. And then we can send that in. And then the rating will be higher, you know, which we deserve. We want a higher rating. That's an answer to a why, but it's not really going to deliver the full value either of what the sustainability professionals are doing inside the company or what the market really needs. To me, the why is more and I, this is why a little bit I went over the background of like my journey and just seeing when things can go wrong and when trust is gone. And it can affect companies. I mean, there were, you know, it wasn't just Enron and WorldCom that got affected, the ones committing the frauds. It affected companies across the market. Even good mm-hmm. reporters were being affected by this sudden loss of confidence in the markets that, oh, is the information we're using in these markets really reliable? Companies that really think through how to build that communication with investors who think that we are on a long-term journey, 
this applies more to sustainability almost than any other subject that when you have a long-term plan, a long-term initiative, you're trying to move through the energy transition, you're, you're trying to invest in big ideas that the company has over a long period, you need the market, you need investors to be with you. You need investors to believe in your vision, in your strategy, in your story. And the way to do that is to report the information that's needed to show we mean what we're talking about. We are executing on this strategy. Sometimes we're hitting our milestones, sometimes we're not, but that's still that transparency builds trust. And when the market understands the strategy, then it does reward companies with trust that, okay, you're executing on a strategy. That's very important, not just when you have market-wide crises, like I described with the early 2000s, but also when you have challengers come in, like an activist hedge fund who says, well, you're spending way too much money on the sustainability approach. You're not capitalizing on the short-term opportunities that you could be. If management has really built that, and it's not just management, by the way, it is really is the board's role as well, and especially the audit committee's role to build that relationship with the market so that the market actually understands what management's trying to do, believes in it, and believes that management is really executing on the strategy and delivering pivoting as you need. I mean, any kind of big strategy, whether it's sustainability related or, or different strategy, you often have to pivot and make course corrections, but that it's all transparent and it's measured and the progress is documented and demonstrated to the market. Then when the activist hedge fund comes to the institutional investors, the long-term investors will say, I actually understand and believe in management strategy. And here's why. They're not going to kind of go along with that alternative short-term idea. So, But you have to be thinking about the long-term because I want long-term credibility in the markets that benefits the company, it benefits management, it benefits employees, it benefits all the stakeholders to have that trust. Yeah, so that's the why you have to get that, you know, and I, I think that that's so important because so many sustainability professionals are tasked with just do the sustainability, right? Like, just do it, mm-hmm. you know, just, you're the expert, go do it. When really what you're saying is that this needs to be part of your corporate governance and strategy as your whole company, right? And this is Central. part of the whole team's initiatives that needs to happen, including the audit committee, including your various manufacturing committees, as well as your sustainability committee you have at your board level, and your senior management team and named executives. And I think that that's exciting for me as I think about the new proposed rule for the SEC, wherever that ends up landing, you know, as always, we're in the in the process of seeing how that will land. But the attention, no matter where it lands, that gives to this topic at in the boardroom, at the management seat with the investor and the investor relations teams, I think is a really important pivot for the industry. Granted, and there will be pain that goes through it as we all figure out these systems and learn how to work together. But I think it is a huge opportunity. The, there's two other pieces that I would just love your thoughts on as we start to wrap up. One is there's another piece of the opportunity puzzle that I've started to see, which is around consultants. As you well know, there are many consultants that work on all the assurance things that you just mentioned and work very closely with boards and senior management teams on audit committees. Where do you see that going in the future? 
Yeah. So I guess anytime there's change, companies can find it useful to go to an entity, a consulting firm or somebody else who is an expert on a topic and has seen, maybe been a little bit ahead of the game and done some research or has some more experience and also has seen more across a bunch of companies so that the company can benefit from sort of a leg up that the company can get from working with a consultant. I mean, I don't think it's unique to sustainability. It could be in any field if you're trying to make a kind of a pivot on something. I think that's probably a moment in time. And I also think it's for every company to decide, do you want to build in-house your work? I mean, in the long run, I think many leading companies have decided we really need sustainability in-house. There can be specific strategic roles for bringing consulting to help the sustainability team, but having sustainability be in-house, I think, has been really important for development for many companies. We'll just have to see where this goes. I think for things like calculating greenhouse gas emissions disclosures, if a consultant can help you develop a system that then you have processes and controls inside the company to operate, I think it can be useful. That's for each company to figure out for themselves. Assurance is actually very different, right? Assurance can't be involved in that process. The assurance provider has to be independent of that process, really cannot have a role in developing that process because they'll then have blind spots or they'll lose their independence. They'll be thinking, well, we put the system in place for you. We can hardly criticize it, can we? I mean, that's investors see right through that. That's very important. Assurance has to be independent for the credibility, for that trust. That's critical. That is is a totally different function. Whether you have a consultant in-house helping you or not helping you, that third-party assurance comes in and then tests whether following the process that you've documented, build confidence both at the board level and management and with investors that the company is actually doing what it says it's doing. And that's where the value comes from. But it's that independent statement. A perfect segue to my last question. So if you or someone you're mentoring is working on their degree related to sustainability or they have aspirations to go into the sustainability field, what counsel would you give them as it relates to learning about this space? You know, do they need to become experts? Should they follow your footsteps and join the SEC before they jump over to sustainability? What's the right path? I mean, everybody's got to follow their own path. I think you got to be a lifelong learner and try to constantly be gaining new knowledge and new skills. I will say in regard to assurance, and we spoke about this a little bit earlier, about a lot of people just don't really understand how to read assurance statements, don't really understand the different components of assurance, how uh, assurance works. You don't need to be an assurance provider. In fact, insurance itself is a communication to somebody who's not the provider, right? To the user of the assurance statement. And so WBCSD and I have teamed up to develop a course for investors on how to read and use assurance statements. I'm just so pleased to be able to deliver this course now because I think investors really understand the importance of assurance, but it's sort of a very technical field. It's hard to necessarily interpret what you're getting out of the assurance report. I think there's a tremendous amount of value that's just left in the pages if people don't actually use those assurance statements and don't know how to evaluate assurance from different providers and different procedures and that are used different levels of assurance, different opinions and statements that come out of it. This course, we're going to go through all of that. We're going to have some great examples. We're also going to talk deeply about the connection between sustainability and financial reporting and how assurance over sustainability disclosures really improves the financial statements. 
while it's designed for investors, I think could be useful in content for a variety of people, including sustainability professionals, board members. It will be very useful to help improve people's understanding and get really a lot more value out of assurance. Yeah, that's great. Thank you, Sam. And thanks for your your work on that, because I do think it'll be hugely valuable for everyone who's interested or working in these types of spaces, either directly as an investor or kind of the adjacent roles. So that'll be great. I'm looking forward to taking it myself. We tried to make it easy for people to take. It's online. It's on demand. At the same time, there's full access to me and other content providers. And also, it's sort of an accordion-style format where you can watch just the lectures, if that's all you have time for. We've got content right there that you can take away from. And then we have numerous guest speakers. We've got guest speakers who are investors. We've got guest speakers who are analysts and data providers. We've got other academics who are guest speakers. So you can expand that accordion as your time and interest in getting deep adjusts. Well, I hope that everyone is able to participate in and learn from Sam beyond just this episode of the podcast. So thank you again, Sam Ross, founder of Assurance Mark and the Investor Consortium for Assurance. Thank you for joining us on the Centerpoint podcast. Thank you, Amy.